Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everybody to Hot Rod Cameras. This is our first ever annual summer bash we're calling Cine Beer. Anyway, there's uh, wonderful food and drink over there. There are fantastic sponsors and product manufacturers here, including companies like Panasonic and Hedane and SLR Magic and uh, Idea Vision and many others. Please, you know, uh, meet and mingle and talk. And of course, I'm very delighted to introduce right now Faden Papa Michael, who's sitting here next to me. He's about to be part of a live podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Cinematography Podcast has been going on for about three years now, and you will be able to find all of our episodes at camnoir.com and also on iTunes. And without further ado, here is the co-host of the Cinematography Podcast, Ben Rock. Thank you. Let me make sure I'm getting good. Uh, I need to lower my level here. All right. Welcome to our high-tech podcast, everybody. Uh, we're really excited to have you. We've never done a live podcast before, so this is our very first live podcast, and we couldn't be more excited but to have Faden Papa Michael here. Faden, thank you so much for coming out. We can't really see each other through this morass of wires and cables. If you, uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with his work, but he's shot extensively for Alexander Payne, for uh, James Mangold. You've done a bunch of work for Oliver Stone. Just amazing work. And I don't know if this is a term that really exists, but I would call him uh, an actor's DP. I, I feel like he work, tends to work on things that are very performance-driven and finds uh, meaningful compositions and lighting and stuff to underscore amazing performances, often for Oscar-caliber uh, type, uh, type movies. So thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for having me. So um, I want to start you with, off with the question that I always start everybody off with. So a question that I, that I start everybody off with is, you get a script and you're reading the script. What do you see when mm. you're reading the script? And I, I often reduce this to, when you're reading a script, are you thinking of it as uh, a thing to be lit or a, comp a series of compositions or anything else? T to me, like, I feel like DPs tend to come from camera or uh, electric. So I think that I reduce it to thinking that DPs tend to want lighting or lensing, but uh, you can answer it however you want. Well, the first thing when you read it, uh, I try to read it through not in a technical way. So I, I, I try to read a script uh, and just take it in. I don't, I don't think about it technically at all the first time I read it. Try to see... It takes me really long to read a script. Like most of my friends can read a script in like an hour and a half, two hours. It takes me like four to eight. And that's because I really wanna like, the first impression is, is very important and very strong. So I wanna be able to see the movie. And, and often it's pretty easy to see the movie the first time. Uh, and then um, I kinda, I, I see it like edited and acted out. It helps when I know what actors are considered and um, and then the music and uh, I see like the final product and if I can do that then that's like my first good response to it. And this is before I, I think at all. I mean I do sort of pay attention is it I mean from a selfish standpoint I do consider is it is it a lot of nights? Um, <laughs> Is it gonna be hard? You know, is it gonna be shot 
on the North Pole or in Jamaica, <laughs> you know, those are considerations. Um, but other than that, I, I just try to see if I can see it, if it comes to me. And I'll give you a good example. Like I read Nebraska and it was like, I could see the movie right away and I could, I, I knew it would be a very good film for me to do. It would suit the way I like to photograph things and had a simplicity and had great characters. And of course being black and white and Alexander Payne. So the second immediate consideration is who's directing it. So it's never like just the material that makes me decide to do a project. It's always a combination of the, the director with this particular material. So if I, I might have a script that I actually like and respond to, but then knowing who's supposed to direct it, I might pass on it for that reason. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, sometimes there's a script where I think doesn't read so strong, but knowing who's directing it, I will, you know, it will become a good film. So, you know, but it's all very subjective and you have to trust your instincts and it's never that technical. It's just trying to imagine how will this director interpret this material? What is his style? Is this style suited for this material? Yeah. Is my style suited? Because, you know, you can tell every movie hundreds of different ways. You can, it's a, it's a lot of it is just a matter of taste and, and you know, you want to find, the most important thing is you find a director that's wanting to make the same movie you want to make, or, you know, that everybody's on the same page. And, and that's why I tend to uh, do repeat business with a lot of directors. I've done four movies. I'm starting my fifth movie with James Mangold. I've, I've done four with Alexander. I, I did three with Vin Benders. Uh, so, um, you know, because it's partially to protect myself because I kind of, I'm able to gauge and know what, what, what it's going to be like with this material and I won't have any surprises because a lot of directors, you know, they say the right things in pre-production, they talk all, all the, the things you want to hear, they do have good intentions, but often, you know, when the reality sets in and they're on the set and, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the same thing. So, yeah. you know, they, they, you know, they they lose track of what's important, uh, they get caught up in technicalities, they focus too much effort on, on visuals and uh, lose the characters. I mean, often I see movies and I go, these are, you know, technically masterful, but I, I, don't, I don't care at all about the characters. So, you know, I do, I do try to take all that in consideration. And that's because I've done so many movies in a way and with worked with so many great actors that that's become really the most interesting aspect of my work in making a film. So, well, you brought up Nebraska. And I think Nebraska is maybe a, a good movie to kind of talk about your process in how you went about doing it. So, because I feel like Nebraska is a movie that, in my opinion, is extremely compositionally driven. Like, like we hang on compositions for a period of time, and sometimes, you know, we'll cut to a shot where there's four people in a doorway or something, and I can't even explain why, but it would make me laugh when I was seeing the movie. So, to me, it feels like a very compositionally driven movie, but, it was, but also in black and white. How much of... Well, somebody, somebody, I don't know if it was Orson Welles, or somebody said black and white is the actor's best friend. And in a way, there is something about seeing a face without the distraction of a color palette yeah. and, and, and the texture of the expressions. And, and that was certainly the case in Nebraska. But 
just to interrupt and before you go make it's it too long. It's all good. Uh, no, no, I mean, the compositions, I mean, that's something we intended with Alexander. I mean, not to the extreme like uh, uh, Stranger in the Paradise, that it's literally like single frame scenes. But we did try to minimize the coverage and we did intend to play certain scenes in the Warner, sort of in the tableau. And, and let the mise-en-scene live on mm. its own. And, uh, and obviously, if we discovered during that that there is some value in a close-up or a little detail, we would add that. But often, we went in planning like three shots, and then we, we did the first master, or let's say wider shot, and we realized it really stands on its own. It's really powerful. I don't require another shot here, so we would, you know, say, okay, that's actually great. And, and the humor that comes from these single compositions, and I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of not, you know, pointing the audience to what they need to be looking at. I mean, being less manipulative with the frame, and, and I really enjoy personally, like, discovering things in a frame. I mean, Stranger in Paradise is one of a movie that had a big influence on me in the early 80s. I like to discover frames in frame, and in order to be able to do that, you need to allow that frame to live, you know, for a certain amount of time. But in Nebraska, there's definitely humor in the compositions. Uh, there's a scene where all all the brothers got together and they're watching TV, and it's just a group shot. It's like ten of them in the room, and and that shot appears on the screen, and it gets an immediate audience reaction. I mean, people laugh before they even start saying their, their absurd, funny dialogue. I mean, it's just that frame evokes uh, humor, and, and, and that's great when you can do that. And, and Nebraska ha was had a great combination of this sort of tragic, lonely, moody setting with this absurdity and this humor and the lack of communication and all that. So that was all emphasized with these uh, compositions and, and, and the slow pacing and and the visual, you know, the, the, the subtlety of the, the lighting, but also there's barely a camera move. There are camera moves in that film, but they're very subtle. They're always incorporated with an actor's movement. There's never an un unmotivated or sort of an attention-seeking shot in it. When you're, when you're doing something like that, like, you know, obviously we live in a world where it's like all fast-cutting, all camera movement, all, you know, CSI angles and, and stuff moving super fast. Um, well, it's not all like that. But there's a, but like that's kind of the prevailing style. I feel like if you were going to make a caricature of the kind of of the style of what. Yeah, but I feel like it's going away from that again because I give master classes often with, um, like at a fire, and and I, I feel like the students, the students actually want to go back to more traditional filmmaking. Mm -hmm. They 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 they're looking at designing you know, compositions and camera moves and, and holding shots and they also want a light, they don't want to just do available light, they, they want to sort of rediscover or, or, or apply that craft that, that you know, I kind of, I'm from that generation that still grew up with a light meter, talking to a lab, nobody really knowing what I'm doing with a viewing glass. Yeah, and, no video and, taps. And, you know, there was a, a great mystery to what the DP was doing, like everybody thinks they can edit, everybody thinks they can direct, so, you know, those, those, those other departments had much more interference from producers, but a cinematographer at the time, like, there was a, a great respect for them because there was something 
that was unknown to them what exactly we're doing. You know, till dailies and any dailies. Usually dailies people were excited, so uh, we got away <laughs> with a lot. Okay, well, and uh, so actually to kind of take a cue from you there, uh, you're, you're the third cinematographer that we've had on here who started out working for Roger Corman. I feel like that it's, it's kind of a mystical time for a lot of us who heard about it, you know, where like all of these amazing filmmakers came out of it. And, and like I said, we interviewed uh, Mike Mickens and Christian Seabolt, who were both Corman guys. Put me in the place, like what brought you to Corman? What was it like working for Corman? Because it seems like we have, well, there are always low budget movies, we still have low budget movies, but there's something very special about Corman's whole uh, it was wow. a fantastic period for, for us, for young cinematographers and young directors. It was, I mean, in my case, it was my film school. I never got to go to film school. I actually had recently moved to Los Angeles. Uh, most of my friends were at AFI, but I actually never went. I, I was going through a magazine called Dramalog at the time, which was, but this is before internet, you could uh, find films <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that were looking for crew mostly deferred pay and you know so I shot a few shorts but getting into uh, the Corman Studios down in Venice on Main Street was was really fantastic for us because we would do f features in 15 days so there was a lot of pressure we were we had to be fast you know we had to fulfill the elements of the genre we had to you know have and during my time it was a strip club which was a set of a he had three sets. He had a spaceship set, a castle set, where he did, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then he the did, uh, you know, then when I was there in 89, or 88, 89, he had the strip club. So I only did, like, Strip to Kill 2, Dance of the Dan, which was a vampire falling in love with the server, all these. Uh, but, but it allowed us to do extremely stylized uh, things. And he didn't really care what we did with colors and, and smoke and we would get inspired and see like you know i remember at the time like uh the great uh, the last emperor came out and it was all these everything was bathed in yellows and reds and and we 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 you know we would just copied all that and applied it to our, our <laughs> you know slasher stripper film but it was great because it wasn't like television which was pretty conservative at the time we really could uh, do a lot and and I was very fortunate because my crew were all AFI students. I had uh, you know Janusz Kaminski was the gaffer on six or seven of those. Mauro Fiore was the key grip dolly grip. Wow. Uh, Wally Pfister was uh, on the crew uh, and they started also eventually shooting second unit for me. So we were this group who uh, really had fun and really learned a lot and we were getting paid. We're shooting 35 millimeter. We had a BL2. We had great little size super speeds. We had Fuji film that somehow came from a gray market in Hong Kong, but we could, you know, shoot <laughs> shoot as much as we wanted, really. Gray market and, Fuji. Uh, you know, they all got theatrical release. We were dealing with Photocam, you know, Mato, my colorist at Photocam, who I used for, you know, over 25 years, was a great colorist. So we really learned the craft. You know, we had our little spectrometers. We, you know, we really learned it. I, I had their limited experience prior to that because I was a still photographer. I didn't really come through the ranks of uh, ACing and, uh, or gaffing. I'd done one movie as a gaffer, one as a first AC. I was not very good at any of that. So it was, um, it was really a great film school. And I feel like, I mean, I, I got super lucky that I got to 
in a way, not spend four years at USC or UCLA and just get to work right away on something like uh, in that. Also with that pressure, you know, we had to be fast. It was very important that we were fast. I mean, I would do average over 60 setups a day. Is that, and how many cameras are you generally running? Uh, mostly single camera. Wow, so that's yeah. fast. I mean, we did have a 2C, but it was not a sound camera. So for some action stuff, we could add another camera handheld, but it was all single camera and uh, tiny crew. And, and then just to add on to that, like with Janusz and Mauro, uh, and Wally, we all, you know, we also continue to be collaborators and remain yeah. friends. Later, Janusz hired Mauro to gaff Schindler's List, and then uh, Wally was my operator for 10 years, uh, and then shot, shot the first feature I directed with Drew Barrymore and Sean Young right after Poison Ivy. Nice. So, it, uh, you know, we all stayed together. And actually, recently, two years ago, we, we created this uh, website because we just wanted to give... Um, uh, people an opportunity to to listen to these stories, you know, uh, and it's not technical at all. It's just like advice, how to get started, and uh, it's purely conversational. And it's called ad advancedfilmmaking.com, and it's on Vimeo, and um, it's Janusz Wally, and we interviewed other people, uh, Vim Benders, Alexander Payne, Kevin Tent, the editor who who's, uh, cut all of Alexander's movie, who oh, also wow. at the time was at Roger Corman. So it's a little bit uh, just, you know, stories of how we all came up, which we all had very different paths. I mean, obviously, everyone knows Janusz started with Steven on Schindler's List. Uh, Wally did B and C movies for a very, very long time until uh, he came across Memento, which was just another one of those low-budget movies. And yeah. started his relationship with uh, Roger Corm. I mean, with uh, Chris Nolan. Oops. Oops. Um, so how did you, like, so you said that you didn't really have a lot of uh, AC or operating experience before you got to Corman. How did you, how did you end up DPing at Corman back then? Well, I, I was a still photographer. I, I moved to the States and um, was approached by a, a friend who wanted to direct a short film. And she had seen my stills and she said, oh, you should shoot my movie. I go, I, I don't really know how to do that. You know, I, I, I'm... Uh, she goes, it's the same thing, you know, it's composition, it's, it's uh, setting, you know, the exposure, and I'm like, okay. And we had a, a, a Claire NPR at the time, it was the one used on Faces on Cassavetes' movie, actually the director was Liz Gazar, she was Ben Gazar's, is Ben Gazar's daughter. And didn't your father work for Cassavetes? My father worked for Cassavetes, so these were some people, we had access to that camera, it was sitting in the closet. And I literally, the day before we shot, I, I went through the, like a three-page manual how to thread the camera. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just started uh, shooting. And, uh, you know, we, we, we had lots of, a lot of mistakes were made. I didn't have a spreader, so my, my wooden sticks kept sliding away. I kept saying somebody should invent something to hold these legs together. <laughs> and, then, and then we're at Photochem, and uh, I remember... You know, we're watching dailies and everybody's like dressed up. It was our first, you know, projected dailies and they were very excited. And uh, it comes up and everything is like flash blue, you know, light blue, like flashed out, like pulsating. And they go like, Faden, what is it? What is, why, why is it doing that? I'm like, I have no idea, you know. So uh, then the projectionist comes out and he goes, well, you know, your lags, mags are leaking light, you know. 
I'm like, why are my mags leaking light? Like my, my $500 Nikon is not leaking light. You know, why is, <laughs> why is this $20,000 at the time film camera leaking light? And I go, yeah, you got to tape the mags off, you know, which obviously we started doing and later we, we still did on all the Panavision shows. And, uh, you know, it's, but it's stuff like that. We just learned by making mistakes. And I started using a light meter. First, I didn't have a light meter. I would actually use my still camera, which had a light meter as my light meter. I would look for the Nikon and, and set, <laughs> set exposure, you know, set it to the ASA, 400 ASA. And, uh, you know, then I it's just uh, so I, I do always recommend just start shooting and, and shoot as much as they can and and most importantly find people and create a group or find most importantly find the director that is on the same wavelength than you are creatively and try to stick together and, and really find people that have the same taste did that short get you in the door at Corman or was there was there no, more no uh, because of that short that was in New York. We moved. I moved to LA, and then, like I said earlier, through this magazine, Dramalog, I, I actually shot a UCLA graduate film. I actually interviewed for Alexander Payne for his UCLA graduate film. Oh wow! At the time, uh, he didn't hire me, so I I got a different UCLA graduate film. They could bring in DPs from that were not at school. Yeah, and uh, I shot that, and then Alexander ended up being the boom man on that. So we know each other for like close to 30 years. And then we always lived in the same neighborhood. We lived in Echo Park and in Silver Lake. And then, um, so we knew what we were doing. And then because I lived also, you know, in Silver Lake, a lot of the AFI students lived there. So we would hang out in this cafe, uh, actually at the Vista at the time. We would watch movies there. That was my other, really my, my, my the second half of my film education was going to the Vista, going to the New Art. Uh, going to the Beverly Cinema and, and seeing, you know, two movies a day, seeing two Tarkovskys, two Fellinis, two Pasolinis, that in conjunction with shooting these, you know, no-budget things. And, and there was also, before that, there was the Z Channel. I don't know who remembers the Z Channel in this room, probably nobody, but it was Certainly on, not me. You don't? Uh, no, I know. It was a brilliant. There's actually a documentary that my cousin uh, Zan Casavetes did about the, the founder of the Z Channel. And it was sort of a cable channel, but his programming, he would do a lot of premieres. Like he would actually premiere indie movies that wouldn't get a theatrical in the studio system. Because at that time, there wasn't really, you know, a Fox Searchlight or. There was no outlet for a lot of these smaller indies, so uh, he would premiere these, but he would also show the same, you know, Fellini film, like Eight and a Half and Amarcord, like for a whole week, like you could watch it, you know, on Thursday, like three times a day, and then, so uh, it, was, it was pretty brilliant. Later he committed suicide. Oh, man. Yeah. But it's a very interesting documentary. So you were watching stuff on the Z Channel, or I'm, I'm unclear? I was watching those on, on uh. television in conjunction with going to as many f films, you know, to the, the art house theaters at the time, the revival house theaters, and, and watching as many films as I could. And also, like, and then all my friends, scenes, you know, yeah. being on the same stage. I mean, I think that's really the, the most important thing about a film school, and the most valuable thing about the film school is that you are being put together with collaborators, friends, 
you know, kids who are on the same level than you are and you're all, I, I think those, those groups and those friendships that you can form in film school, I think that's probably the best part about film school. I'm not a big, you know, supporter of, you know, what's actually taught to you or, or what the teachers can actually teach you in film school because I think a lot of it doesn't apply to the reality of working on a set. So I, I would say do if you can unfortunately there's no real internship program anymore but if you can get on as a camera PA or if you can work on a feature in the camera department uh, somehow that will give you 10 times more practical knowledge and uh, an insight to how you can fulfill your craft uh, than being four years and getting a master's from UC I think you know. so um after, after you've uh, made a number of movies for Corman, you kind of moved on to stuff that was more, I don't know if it was studio-based, but stuff that was, had, had, had bigger budgets, things like Poison Ivy, which... Yeah, that was a New Line movie. That was, I mean, our budgets at Corman were 300,000. Yeah. Uh, Poison Ivy was 5 million. You know, it was instead of three weeks of shooting, it was seven weeks of shooting, which was, you know, incredible for us. And, yeah. Um, and then uh, I did a, a mini-series, uh, Wild Palms, that Oliver Stone produced, yeah. and that was interesting. I had great directors, Kathleen Bigelow, uh, Phil Giovanni, um Keith Gordon. And so there was a lot of uh, interesting filmmakers. And, and that was like some cutting-edge stuff for its time, Yeah, too. it was cutting-edge stuff at the time, also uh, technically pretty advanced. And, and uh, you know, then it was uh, really my first studio break came with Cool Runnings, because John Turtletaub was a director that I had done a, a smaller Corman-like film with called Driving Me Crazy uh, with Dom DeLuise and Billy Dee Williams and Thomas Gottschalk and it was but Cool Runnings which was also a very low budget studio picture but it was Disney had John Candy was 17 million but it, it became commercial a commercial hit and yeah. it made close to 100 million dollars so uh, you know, through that launch, sort of our collaboration with Turtle Top, you know, I did While You Were Sleeping with him, which was Sandra Bullock's second film. They only knew her as like the girl uh, from the bus movie at the time. <laughs> and then we did Phenomenon later. That was our last film together. Uh -huh. but, but that kind of got you into the studio world. Now, so each one of the, like, there's, there's several stuff. It's like getting into Corman, I, you know, in, in entailed something, then kind of getting into like New Line kind of a situation. Like, what was the thing that kind of got you over the line to the next level of your career uh, for each one of those? I think being able to get the first studio movie and getting approved by the studio, because if you hadn't done a studio movie, it's really hard to get approved. To, but because Wild Palms was like a prestigious miniseries, yeah. they approved me. And then, I mean, I had all the qualities that they liked. I was uncomplicated. I didn't have a lot of equipment because I was not used to a lot of equipment. So I didn't order a lot of big packages, and then uh, <laughs> I was fast, you know. I was really always, I've been fast, even even now it's a very important quality you have to have as a DP. I mean, there's lots of great, great cinematographers that have worked in the 70s and, and 80s that can't work anymore because they're just too slow. Yeah, yeah. And that, that those times are gone, you know. You know, when I asked the question about composition versus lighting, I thought I, I had pegged you for a composition person because I think your work has such a specific, beautiful composition. I'm thinking about, I mean, like, 
James Mangold's work is, is, is rife with amazing compositions, but 310 to Yuma is such, a, is such a striking, beautiful, gorgeous film, and I feel like so compositionally driven from the film. Yeah, filmmaking. I mean, definitely coming from stills, the frame is like the most important base for things for me, the composition. But, but you know, and then lighting is mostly, you know, I start with the base of natural light and then I look what that is. I, I, I try to get a camera up really early in, in rehearsal and blocking so I can already look through a frame when we're moving the actors around and I get involved in the blocking very, very early on. That's another very important tip for young cinematographers because you don't want to do it later. You don't want to do it after they worked it out. You don't want to do it when the director kind of has figured it out. You want to do it early on. So uh, because once the actors walk out of the room, you really want to change as little as possible, ideally nothing. So, yeah. you know, but if you get involved early and often it's a very simple step it's 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 taking the action as it is and just rotating it 45 degrees and then everyone is side lit throughout the scene instead of back lit and front lit and and also i tell the director if if we can block it like this and if we can shoot it in over a two hour time period i'm not going to have to fly three condors out the windows and maintain it i can actually do this scene are you comfortable trying to attempt doing this in the next three hours because I think we can do it in these three shots and he goes yeah you know because it's an advantage for him also it's an advantage for him to not have to wait around it's an advantage to have the actors be fresh and not burn out with a lot of coverage and wait for big relights in between setups yeah you know so that 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 stimulates the entire situation on set and actors really love it I mean, and George Clooney, the reason I ended up shooting the two movies that George Clooney directed is because on, on Descendants, he saw how I work with Alexander, and he works in a very, or likes working in a similar way, which is also limited coverage, short days. You know, <laughs> get home. And yeah, get home, get back to the basketball game. and. Um, <laughs> So that's really important for some directors. You know, other directors, it's a process. You know, they storyboard things, they stick to things. I mean, I've worked on two features with Gore Vabinsky. He comes from commercials. He's very technical. We did Mouse Hunt and Weatherman, and uh, I prepped another big show with him called um, Bio, Bioshock, which actually never happened because it was very technical and very expensive. You know, that's a different process. It's the creative process happens more in the, in the pre-production period and the design of the movie. And, the, you know, it's illustrated. It has previs. It has, uh, I mean, in those days, it was storyboarded. But then when you actually go and work on the set and when you're actually executing the work, I mean, you're kind of painting by numbers. It's, it's, there's no flexibility. And to me, it's always more interesting like I remember, and I love Gore, so don't get me wrong, but I mean, I remember going from Weatherman, which was very designed, very specific color palette, and, and I went straight to Walk the Line, which was, you know, very reactive to Joaquin Phoenix being, you know, method actor, us never really knowing what he's gonna do, where he's gonna go, is he gonna smash the guitar, is he gonna fall off the stage? So being super flexible, <laughs> You know, in a way like Cassavetti style and, and camera being 
the slave to the actor versus versus uh, vice versa and uh, you know to me it was liberating to come onto a show like that off the show that you know was also very challenging but it's so controlled where the palette and the shots are so controlled uh, but it's the technical challenge and the standards are really high but to me it's not it's not so much fun it's not it's not uh, the challenge I'm looking for I mean the challenge I'm looking for is to discover things discover things in a performance you know steal these little moments be there at the right time uh, give them the freedom so they can do that and and being there and capturing it as intrusively as possible and it's interesting that you're, that you're saying this and I, I had uh, read some interviews with you before this so I kind of knew that your preference was kind of working it out but I feel like uh, when you look at Vim Vendor's films, you look at um, you look at Alexander Payne's films, you look at James Mangold's films. They all feel very designed, top to bottom. And I'm not saying that you're making it up on the day, but but they feel. If you were to tell me that they were all, you know, uh, meticulously storyboarded, I would believe you because there's such uh, outrageous uh, intentionality behind every setup and every composition. And you know, some if if you're not super prepared walking in sometimes you're not going to be able to find yeah. that on the day but but i feel like that's like your one of your skills is, well is Ma that. mangled and alexander are also writers so they understand the material really well uh, mangled is also very he's a very good visual filmmaker he has a good eye he's a photographer himself uh, so is the vendors i mean i've seen all of the vendors movies i grew up very influenced by robbie miller so uh, to me, you know, I understood his aesthetics very well. So there was actually very little communication creatively. And even with Mangold, and he always says, don't say that in f events like this. Don't say we're just winging it because people don't like it. Uh, like if well, you're, you're not, not putting in the work. It. You're extremely skilled people. Who yeah, are but going you can't do it with everyone. So I'm just saying, but if yeah. you have somebody who has that ability, who can figure things out in his head quickly, then yeah. it's, it's great. You know, it's great. Uh, to do that. I don't like doing it with people who are not comfortable doing it because I'm not comfortable if a director is not comfortable. I don't want to take the director. So I can see he's not sure if we, got, if we got it or he doesn't really understand it. You know, it's, that's not that interesting to me. I mean, I'm there to serve a director. I do want, in the end, of course, to contribute. But I, if you look at the movies I've done, they, they have very diverse in style I mean it's not like Vittorio Storaro where you go oh yeah he shot that he shot that you know it's like I see his you know his handprint all over that I mean I, I do like to say that you know uh, this movie I did for this Georgian director Nana Georgiadze I never talked to her about anything because she didn't communicate at all but like if you see the movie I did for her it looks like all her other movies in a way it feels like the integrity of her yeah. storytelling is there. Same with Inventors. I mean, it's very much a Inventors movie in terms of mood and and feel and pace and uh, and you know, Gore's movies look like Gore's movies and Mangold's movies look like Mangold's movies and Alexander Payne movies. Although we don't always aesthetically agree, especially in the DI, um, <laughs> you know, but. Um, I made the choice to work on that film. He's a great filmmaker. I think he's like the Hal Ashby of our generation or, you know, Altman. 
I feel very privileged to that he's working with me. I'm not gonna enforce what I think is right. I want him to be comfortable and be working. I mean, it's his movie, right? Well, so. Oh, so, but take me into this because I think a lot of people maybe don't understand how, how yeah, a lot how, of people don't understand that. how this negotiation works where it's like you come in you have all of your experience you have all of your knowledge and you have an opinion about how to do something and then somebody like and I'm just using Alexander Payne as an example and we could talk about something such as the DI how does it work like do you go in do you make your case how emphatically do you make your case I assume at the end of the day Alexander Payne gets to decide how he's going to do it but it, it's kind of a political part of, of uh, of the cinematography. Yeah, you know, you, I mean, look, you have to like your director and then you don't feel bad about manipulating them sometimes <laughs> um, because it's with good intention. And of course, like I said, you know, if they're not comfortable, but you know, that's your experience comes in. I mean, we have, as cinematographers, we get to do more movies than directors. I mean, Alexander is very prolific. He's done seven, six movies, seven movies. You know, I've done 42 or something. So, yeah. of course, we have more experience. Also, I think we're maybe a little better in terms of time management. Like, I know when we're falling behind, and I know when I see it before almost anyone on the set because I've just been on so many films that I do control the pace. I try to, and I... I just worked with a, a very young and experienced filmmaker on a great project, and he's a, the writer, and it's a great film, but he had no concept of time. And he's like, we're shooting a scene, and he's like getting distracted. He sees something. We shot it in Brooklyn and Brighton Beach, and there's stuff going on all over us. I mean, there's super interesting things. And he would be like, we also want to get these people on the street there, and like this old couple there. And then I'm like, yeah, we'll get that. You know, but like, we're going to... like like 40 more minutes to do this and then we got to turn around and then if we get this scene and we have time then we can go down the street and maybe grab some of those but like you got to focus them and I feel comfortable doing that because I know I'm just helping them because yeah. I say you know if we don't turn around now or I, I or they'll design some shot that I'll go this will never play in the movie it's 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 because I've also directed five features, so I mean, having to spend time in the editing room is super valuable for a cinematographer. Because you know, you design these shots that are long shots, and they look great, and they stand. Even the scene can function great individually on its own, but like in the context of the entire structure of the movie, it just doesn't work that way. And that, unfortunately, you only discover by suffering through failed. <laughs> you know ill-designed Ill movies um, so I do I do sometimes tell him like this this is not good. this is not a, a, a good move for us because it's gonna cause this and this down the line if you want to spend the time on this scene be prepared to drop this or this scene and and things like that which is very hard for a director I mean a director always wants everything and especially if they write it and um, you know, that's, I mean, I, I do feel comfortable giving them sort of a bigger picture of the reality of what is the, what are the production restrictions for you financially yeah. also. I mean, they don't understand really what, like what, what is in the involved when they say, we, I want to shoot on this location on the fifth floor. I'm like, we can do it, but it's going to take us, you know, three hours to get set up. Because there's only one elevator, there's, you know, I, I can't get scaffolding outside. 
so we have to get scissors or a condor which is gonna come out of your budget here and you know so I will manipulate him or whatever you want to talk how you want to call it I will try to make him shoot it on the first floor or you know just because I go it's gonna give you more shooting time you're gonna be able to do the scene in two days instead of three days uh, things like that so I do think that's where an experienced a cinematographer can should get involved you know and it's not bullying the director it's it's I mean that's why they hire you you know they want they want that they should want that input you know um, but in terms of style and emotionally where is where is the heart like every scene has its its purpose its function and if they don't know that then it's super frustrating for a cinematographer but if they know that, I don't care how they communicate it to me. I, uh, I need to know what it is, and then I will interpret it for them like the most effective way. But um, they need to know what it is. And I always ask him, what is important for you in this scene? Like, what are we getting out of the scene? Because then I can decide how to cover it, and I can decide what to drop and not lose the essence of what is what is the essence of this scene and why is it necessary to function you know in in the in the timeline of this movie can you give me an example of, of that because i think that that's it's something that uh everyone analyzing a script really needs to be thinking about have you ever been in a situation where you know like you're talking about what you call the heart of a scene so like you're doing a scene in whatever movie uh have you ever been in a, in a circumstance where you disagreed with the director on what that was on, or on what the essence of that was or is it really something that you just look to the director to, to specify for you? Well, I can't disagree with the director of if he thinks that is the essence of the scene. I'm not going to disagree with that. I'm not the writer and I'm not the director. Yeah. But if he tells me what the essence is of the scene and I realize he's not getting it, then I will get involved. Oh, you know, okay. Then I feel he's not capturing that because he's... he's He's shooting everything. He's spending like two hours on a master that I'm not getting the information that I need that he told me is the essence of the scene. Then I'm going to say to him, we got to get off his master and we got to get in there. Yeah. You know, you're wasting too much time on your master. But like, I, I'm not going to disagree, you know, having read the script and having chosen to work with this director. If he tells me this is the essence of the scene and we're doing it and I think you know this is not good I'm not gonna tell him it's not good if he's getting the essence of what he thinks is the essence of this thing you know yeah yeah I mean we do between us you know other crew people like my gaffer who's I've done 30 movies with and and, and my operator uh, like Scott Sakamoto or somebody who's very experienced I mean we will say this scene you know we go name you know not in movie you know we, this is this <laughs> is not gonna be in the movie and we do know that I mean, we do, and that does happen a lot. I mean, where are we? And I go, like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, they go, like, should we do, should we pull the gel off the windows? I'm like, don't worry about it. This will never be in the movie. Really? Yeah, but. And, like, what percentage of the time? Ideally, you don't want to, yeah, <laughs> be in those situations. Um, cool. Well, uh, I, w I wanted to, uh, well, actually, before we open it up to, uh, to, to questions, I'll, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your directing career because you've done, uh, like you said, six features, correct? Yeah, I think five and a five. short film. Okay, Recently, so a short. six films. That's where I get the number from. And I have two in development. So um, I always want to know from DPs who direct, what is it like handing the reins over to another DP? 
Well, first I should say whenever I direct something, I'm super happy to go back to DP. <laughs> I do love the experience of the actual directing the actors and I do like the editorial process. I do love music with images. The actual, the craft part is great. The problem with directing is there's this whole period before where you're trying to cast a movie, trying to finance it, uh, and then after the movie's done, at least the movies I'm involved with, you know, trying to get a sales company, distributing it, having it seen, and, and that's very unpleasant. So what's great about being a cinematographer is normally by the time I get hired, the movie is really greenlit, it's in place, it's almost cast, you know, I get to start work and then when I wrap, the movie goes for its process and eventually comes out, I don't have to deal with any of that. So that's really great. So, and I'm also, so I'm saying that to explain I'm not a frustrated cinematographer. <laughs> I, lo I love shooting, especially with directors that I respect. I think it's probably the, the better of the two in terms of jobs. Uh -huh. Of course, you, you're not always in the position where you can choose the projects you work on, but uh, I feel very lucky that at this point I kind of do, and, and I'm very happy. The reason I direct is sometimes um, I have something that interests me. I also have shot movies that I directed or operated them. Uh -huh. I do like that. I do like in coming to set and not having to... I feel like it's actually less pressure having to... Uh, just being able and, and decide what to do because if I take a risk and I'm a director or cinematographer then I mean I carry the consequence of if I say we're not going to do any other shots in the sequence and let's move on I don't have to feel like I have this, this guilt that maybe you know maybe we missed something and he's going to be suffering for it later and uh, you know it's, it's you, you're responsible for your own decisions which I think in a way it's less pressure for me you know, I feel more responsible often for a, a, a director I work with. Uh, I'm more reckless, let's say. <laughs> I mean, I, dir I direct a lot of commercials and I do three-hour days, four-hour days, because I feel like I got it and I, 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 I just sort of, you know, I'm kind of more reckless. No, it's, it's you know, and it's very similar in a way. I mean, you know, in, in Europe, when they ask me, what do you do? I say, you know, I'm a cinematographer. Oh, you know, like a lot of cultures, like Eastern European cultures, like that have great film traditions, like, you know, right now I'm working in Republic of Georgia, but uh, I mean, they've been making movies since 1900 and in film studios. And, and to them, when you ask them, well, who is your great filmmaker? They will name the cinematographer, you know, who did, um, of a director who did like I'm Cuba and the cranes are flying and then they'll name this cinematographer or if you talk to Polish filmmakers or look at the Polish film traditions the respected filmmakers are not just the directors I mean the we're storytellers in an equal sense and of course as a cinematographer you're a little more technical also in China they exchange a lot you know they the one guy shoots for shoots one movie the, the other one directs and then on the next movie they reverse roles oh really yeah and it's uh, I think it's you know I feel you know we're just telling a story and okay I'm, I'm this time I'm more in charge of the you know framing running the crew 
lighting and then next time I'm you know more in charge of this designing shots and working with actors but it's it's um, I think you know it's very very related the two and I, I think it's uh, it's I think it's great to be able to to do both I do think there's great value in having directed when you do any other job on a, on a movie set because you also learn respect for all the other positions all the crews you know you realize all their contributions in a different way you know a cinematographer often because you're like the main the main guy in a way on the set you think you know that what you do is of greater importance but if you're a director you realize that every element is super important you know like if you don't have the right prop if you you know if you have a bad wardrobe you know, if, if you know the trucks are parked in the wrong spot if uh, uh, there's no food that you know if a crew is not happy you know it's like you realize like you can't make like, a movie that way and 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 I think it just opens up you know your filmmaking uh, sensitivities to, to be aware of like all the elements that it takes because also the pr actual production part when you're shooting a movie is it's a very important part, but it's just one small piece of a puzzle. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the casting is, the script is number one, casting, locations, and then, you know, the edit. I mean, a movie gets conceived or made three times in the writing, in the shooting, and then in the edit, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and each time you kind of discover the film new. And um, if you've never been through the entire process I think you're you're limited when you're directing and DPing and I'm always curious about this with people who do both at the same time how do you parse out watching watching for composition lighting and all the things the DP would look yeah, for I don't recommend that and I and did that but I don't I don't think it's a good idea I don't think it's a good idea to shoot and and direct at this on the same project but I like it because I used to operate anyway and when I had my eyepiece now I don't use an eyepiece anymore but I, I used to live in my own little world in my eyepiece it was like sitting in a movie theater uh -huh. and I, I actually felt like can, I can judge performances really well and I also feel the physical proximity to the actor not being in a video village and or in a tent or far away I mean it's of great value but you know you can take your eye off the eyepiece and say something to a a human being that's right there that's acting that's insecure that needs another face to read human feedback and just hearing a voice from the tent okay let's that was good let's do another one you know they look at the operator I think the operator and traditionally the operators had a great importance with the actors like Bruce Dern who has you know done a hundred movies he always he remembered all the operators over the years same oh, wow. with Dustin Hoffman remembered every operator's name in England and everywhere that's because they had a special rapport and, and so I try to be by the camera whether I'm directing or shooting and I try to bring my director next to the camera on an Apple box or standing next to me using my monitor which now of course since I'm shooting digital I actually operate off a 17 inch OLED and I light off of it that has the LUT applied already so I'm already looking at the approximation of what our final product is and uh, but in the old days even with a film camera I would have 
have him stand and, and watch the onboard monitor. And, and, and the actors love that. And I think uh, any, uh, any director should try and do that. Cool. I would love to uh, open up uh, to questions from the audience. Does anybody have questions? Don't be shy. I will repeat your question. Yeah, I mean, I was at uh, Cinegear on Friday, and I ended up standing next to Heute and Linus and Maddie and just drinking and uh, gin tonics. And people came up and asked that question. Like, you know, they, they didn't really have time to have a conversation with us. Just give me one piece of advice, like, when... And, and, and Heute said, I, I, I don't know, I can't, I don't know really what <laughs> to tell you. And I go, well, you know, and I said it earlier, is try and find try and find filmmaker that like wants to do I mean you know I don't know what you want to do like you like horror films I don't <laughs> but I've done I've done horror films you know try and find what you like and try and find a filmmaker if you're a cinematographer try and find a director that has you know likes the same kind of movies you do and stuff and, and just try to find the talent try and collect talent in whatever capacity you are I mean an actor has to find that, and uh, a director has to find a great producer, a great writer, or, you know, I think that's, that's the most important thing to, that will lead you to success. I mean, you can't do anything on your own. You can never, if you shoot a movie that looks great, but the movie sucks, it's like no one's gonna give a shit. You know, it's really a problem. Because often I feel some of my best work was done on movies that didn't really work, and it's, such a waste you know so um, I mean there's snow falling on cedars is one of the most beautiful movies in the world you know ever but people never really talk about it I, I actually went to see that movie just because uh, Robert Richardson shot it yeah I mean I watched it you know several times I and mean, it's beautiful but you mention it to people they're not aware of it you know I mean sideways is not a visually spectacular movie but people go all the time oh my god sideways you know I fucking love it you know like no matter where I'm in India in Africa like South America they always like you know so if you get lucky you have a good looking movie when it's also a good movie you know but that's that should be what you strive for that so you know find a talented director find try and find good material on the other hand I will contradict myself and say shoot as much as you can <laughs> I mean, I've shot, you know, all of us, Wally, Pfister, we all did, you know, a shitload of movies that certainly were not going to be good movies. But, you know, we experimented with them. We tried, we, you know, fine-tuned our skills. Um, and on every movie, you will meet one person out of the 50 or 100 or 300 people that are working on it that you will form a relationship with and connect with and, and, and keep them, you know? Try and keep contact, trying to to work with them again, and uh, it's a lot of it is this kind of networking within. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I I couldn't believe how many people were at Cinegear on Friday. I mean, I I haven't been in a few years, and it's it's unbelievable the amount of you know it's scary in a way. I would I would be scared if I was 22. You know, I mean, I'd be. But again, you know. I mean, we have all these abilities now, technically, to everyone can go out and make a movie. I mean, I have everything at home where I can do a fully releasable feature with 
just what I have sitting in my house. It's nothing special, you know. Uh, by the way, the, the question, which I, 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 sh I will repeat them all before we go, was any advice for young cinematographers? So uh, who else has a question? Uh, just come up with something. Uh, so the question is, is there any shot specifically that you've done that stands out in your career? A single shot? Like the most amazing single shot experience? Well, there's always an excitement level. You know, when we were earlier, we couldn't afford anything. So when I had a Titan crane and stuff, and I was somewhere, you know, that was great. Uh, uh, and we would design cool shots. But like I said earlier, a lot of those were not really suited necessarily for the scene just because we were given the Titan for one day, <laughs> you know. No, but you know, I mean, I've done some incredibly long wonders that I was very happy about as a director. Like I remember the first movie I was directing, I had a seven page scene and I, I designed it to work in three shots and I didn't get a shot off before lunch and the producer was flipping out and I go, don't worry about it. And then like, you know, we did these three shots like from lunch to like four in the afternoon and I go, we're wrapped and it was a 10 hour day. So that kind of stuff is great when you feel like uh, you resolve something like that. But I would, I would hate Steadicam, uh, so I would lay track for like hundreds and hundreds of yards through forests and stuff. That was always great when we successfully completed that. Uh, but you know, eventually I was able to afford good Steadicam people, and then I, I hooked up with a young Steadicam operator named Jimmy Muro, who later became a DP. And but on Wild Palms, he changed everything for me. He was uncomplicated. He was could go low mode to high mode within minutes, and he was very creative, and he opened my eyes uh, in terms of using that tool. Um, but I, was yeah. gonna, I was gonna ask you what you didn't like about Steadicam. It seemed like Steadicam would be very helpful in, in, in some of the stuff that you do. Yeah, I mean, I never, I always tell the Steadicam operator, make it look like a dolly shot, so. <laughs> but it's, it takes, you know, not everyone can do that. Although I do find a lot of, I, I do try to meet and, and, and tr use young new st operators on, on commercials. And I'm always blown away actually by the skill level, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I just met uh, a few years ago Ari. Uh, he, I recommended him to Linus and uh, he did, uh, he was uh, voted operator of the year for uh, La La Land. Oh, you know, nice. But I found him on a commercial. I mean, I wasn't the first one who found him, but <laughs> I, I, I recommended him to Linus. And it's, it's great to, to find that. And they're great, you know. But um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I'm, I'm still working with uh, Scott Sakamoto, who's amazing. And, but, you know, they're all getting older, as, as am I. So. <laughs> <laughs> question is, and this is a loaded question, what is the toughest film you ever worked on? Oh, that's not hard. Uh, mentally, psychologically, the toughest one was working with Oliver Stone because he's a very demanding, he's, he's very demanding on himself. And uh, uh, he likes to work under this environment that's very challenging because I think it focuses 
his own mind, but uh, not everybody functions well under those conditions. I personally prefer a more easygoing, relaxed director, and I feel like I'm, I'm uh, I, I prefer to be the one who's worried and put on pressure. Um, but uh, so that was very exhausting. It was a challenging to meet his incredibly high standards. Uh, and I, I do remember when I wrapped that show, I sat with my key grip on the tailgate of a grip truck and I was like, fuck man, I mean, that was a hard one. <laughs> I'm glad, I mean, that one's over. Uh, but challenging in terms of physicality, I mean, 310 to Yuma was very hard with the horses. Uh, New Mexico in the winter, unbelievable, super short days, like it wouldn't really get bright enough to shoot till 9 a.m. and then uh, at 2.30, 3 o'clock I was already pulling filters and and then uh, we still, it, the producers still insisted on breaking for lunch so I would have like two and a half hours before lunch and like two and a half hours after lunch and big action scenes, stunts, horses, crazy and, and but that's when it helps having a director like Mangold who can move fast and is also responsible and, and uh, you know, doesn't, not wasteful. I mean, he's very good. He's become very good with production. I mean, on Logan, we did, I did two weeks of reshoots on Logan. I shot the whole final sequence uh, over. And, you know, he, and, and then we went in and on Greatest Showman, we actually did a two-week fix. Oh, wow. With a, Michael Gracie was still is was still present, the director, and he he did a great job. But we we came in and there were some new scenes written and stuff, and and just the way uh, James Mangold is so specifically focused on what's needed, like little things will make a huge difference in terms of performance. Or I mean, I'm not talking shots or this. I mean, the the show was completely designed and the look was established and. Seamus McGarvey had shot it and done an amazing job. Uh, but, you know, just like going in and, and, and knowing what are these little things that actually will make a big difference. That's, I mean, that's, that's challenging not to miss those, but it's also really satisfying. Yeah. But physics, you know, movies in the cold are really hard. I, I'll take the heat over cold. Any other questions? Right. Yeah. The the question is, any influences from uh, the Eastern European schools of uh, Tarkovsky and Kislovsky? I mean, a huge influence for me. I mean, I grew up watching those movies, uh, as well as Antonioni movies and and uh, um, and you know Japanese masters, uh, but. And it was detrimental to me in a way in the beginning because I was always trying to talk directors into shooting like that. And of course, they, they would be scared, like John Turtletop on Cool Runnings was not going to design shots like that. And rightfully so. So I also learned, okay, you know, this is the kind of movie that requires this, this. But, you know, of course... Um, you know, with James Mangold, he's a big fan of those films, and and Alexander, and obviously Vim Benders, so they all know it. Um, 
But you know, there's a poetry uh, to the way to tell a story that way. That's also very visual, but also emotionally very impactful. And if you can get those moments, but you also have to recognize: is the content strong enough to shoot like that? Often, I would imply that visual style to something that was banal and therefore just became pretentious and boring. So, you know, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, it's important that the movie is good. If it doesn't become good because of that, you have to abandon that. Uh, you know, you can't get hung up on that. You can't insist on that. Uh, but um, you know, and then a lot of it is is also the performers. You know, like the perf the actors have to be able. I mean, I was, I literally remember showing a scene from Lawrence of Arabia to John Turtletop, and I go, look, this is where he tells him, you're going to go to the desert and all that. It's like a two shot. A wide two shot that goes on for 10 minutes. There's no, not a single close up. Or you would look at uh, The Graduate, you know, how that's covered. I mean, there's a scene where they're at the bar at home and, and Bancroft comes in in the back and she goes upstairs and you never cut to her and you see all the expressions change of the actors in the foreground. It's, it's such a powerful shot and so economically told. I mean, we're always looking for economy of storytelling. Uh, that's really important. But, you know, if you don't have a performance, performance to do it, you're going to have to cut away. I mean, we often uh, integrate non-actors with actors. Like on this Georgian film I just did in Brighton Beach, 80% of the cast were uh, civilians. So, and, and not only that, they've never seen a camera that never been anywhere near I mean like not even like if you get somebody from LA they kind of like know how to a little something you know but they had no idea like you would say stop I mean forget marks like uh, that's you can't put marks because they'll look at them you know you can't tell them not to look at I mean so you build barriers with chairs and uh, <laughs> you know but uh, but if, you, if you're working like that, and this director was very, very, is Eastern, he is Eastern European, and his movies are very much like that, like the Romanian films now. And, um, but he said, you know, and also it's shot in a language that I don't speak, so I'm like, how's the performance? How's the perf I kept asking him, is this good? Because the shot was great. He's like, no, you know, so I go, okay, well, let's, let's cover it, you know, because we have to. I mean, it's great if you can do it, but often you, you can't. I mean, if you have, you know, I mean, you have, you know, Brando or Peter O'Toole and or Lawrence Olivier, or, you know, uh, it's, it's great to do hold on a two shot and get a feeling for, you know, that, but. Boba Fett movie. So James. Oh Rambo. yeah, Boba Fett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the question was, uh, do you have since you've been working with? Yeah, James yeah. Rambo I mean, Boba Fett was announced. I mean, uh, mangled is a, a, a attached. I think. I think he. I mean, this gets complicated, but I think he wants. I mean, he wants to do it. Uh, I would probably be excited to do that. Not a big fan of all these movies, not just Star Wars, but. Uh, I just don't, I mean, you know, uh, 
I don't watch almost any Marvel movies, not just because, I mean, I probably could get into him. I, I just, I, I'm, I, I just don't. <laughs> I, I just don't have a time, you know. I also have kids, and they, 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 they don't like them. They're bored by them. I show my kids like Doctor Strangelove and, you know, the right stuff and, and Lawrence of Arabia and and the Man Who Would Be King, you know, by John Huston, like great adventure movies that influenced me when I was, my kids are 10. And so... You're like, and, you, you and, get to watch Doctor Strange love. Yeah. So, and then my wife is like, why are you showing them Doctor Strange love? They're not going to like that. And they love it. They think it's so funny. And they love Peter Sellers and, you know, a party. And, and so when I actually, ta I did take him to see Rouge One or whatever it's called. Rogue um, One. Huh? Rogue One. <laughs> uh, they were bored, you know. They were bored. They're bored. I was bored. They were bored. Uh, so I watch those movies sometimes on the plane. But, you know, with Mangold. And there's a reason I didn't do the Wolverine movies with Mangold. I mean, I turned those movies down. Uh, I just didn't want to do them. Although I love... But that goes earlier to deciding what uh, material, but in conjunction with... And then I did think Logan was pretty good, you know, for that. But I'm excited that now he's going, not doing, you know, that we're doing a different story. We're starting a movie right now. I'm doing a 1966 race car movie, Ferrari versus Ford, that has great characters. Christian Bale's in it. It's called Le Mans 66. And I'm happy we're doing, you know, not um, whatever you call it, like a franchise movie or whatever that is cinematic universe I mean I did I did like Guardians of the Galaxy I thought it was funny I mean I like I like when things are funny you know. well what I appreciate about Mangold and you know with something like Logan you see it writ large because my, my wife is not super into the comic bookiest movies I had no problem convincing her to go check that out and it was like it's a science fiction movie that's a comic book movie that's a western and also at the same time doesn't feel like any of those yeah, things. Yeah, I mean it's a good American drama, road movie, father, daughter, all yeah. that. All those elements are great. And that's what he does though when you look I at I mean the he also has claws and stuff yeah. which <laughs> I mean if other stuff's great I can ignore the fact that he also slices up people with his claws. <laughs> but like, you know, Mangold what he's so great at and what you've been so great at working with him and the other stuff that you've worked on is all this like very deep character stuff and kind of yeah. character driven stories. I mean if a character is there you can do a lot, you know, you can take a lot of liberties. It doesn't matter. I mean look John Cassavetes, I don't know if, how many of you have seen like Women Under the Influence or Faces or you know, I mean, technically, if John was alive right now, he'd be shooting with an iPhone, you know, and they'd be very powerful movies. So, I mean, if you have strong characters and uh, it doesn't really matter technically. I mean, although I'm a cinematographer, like when I do direct, I don't put the emphasis on the visuals. Like, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm happy when the visuals work and work with the story, but I mean, it's more important to, you know, to to achieve, you know, whatever story you're trying to tell effectively. I mean, so it can, it can be distracting. I mean, I fucked up a lot of movies directing just because I was doing every every job except actually the directing. I mean, I, I literally would get there, start moving, base camp, you know, 
setting up craft service somewhere else. Uh, I mean, and, and a lot of cinematographer directors, some friends of mine, uh, have fallen into a similar trap. It's also sort of a comfort zone for us. Like, we address the things that we know how to do, and we do that, and then we save talking to the actor till the last moment because we don't really want to deal with the, you know, the random possible response that they're going to give us. So let's do uh, one more question. Uh, does anybody else have a question? Somebody's got to have a question. Bill Totolo has... Oh, go ahead. What kind of shot? Oh, how striving for a great shot can suffocate performance. Well, that's what I said earlier. I mean... You really don't want to make actors, I mean, and some actors, by the way, are amazing. And usually the good actors are also technically very good. Like George Clooney is masterful. Like he, he notices like, I'm doing something, I'm looking, he's like, what, do you want me to be bend down a bit? You know, like he knows everything. And I can give him a direction and it, will, it won't affect his performance. But of course, others are com completely thrown off by it. And then they'll either do what I ask them to do and then like blow the whole take in, in terms of, <laughs> or they will forget it. So it's pointless to tell them. So, but you know, so you want to give the actor, you don't want to, I mean, if I have an actor who's amazing and also technically amazing, I will, uh, I will tell him what I need. I will tell him what will help him and me. Um, but you know, over designing a shot, um, and them having to be stiff therefore or not being able to feel free to move also for light and things uh, you know can suffocate a performance but but sometimes you have to tell him like I did a romantic comedy with Bill Pullman and he was very methody it was with Sandra Bullock and he kept playing always he kept always playing his head down and I could never see his eyes. And I go, this is a romantic comedy, man. The window is to your soul is through your eyes. I get nothing out of you doing like a James Dean thing here. You know, like, you know it was just, so I told him, you know, I'll tell him and, and if they're smart and nice and not, you know, affected by thinking that a star, which he was, I mean, they, they get it. I mean, you know, they should. They, a great operator can be the best friend for an actor. And, and the smart, experienced, good actors know that. But, you know, you got to be, I mean, you got to be, you got to know how to do it. You got to know how to talk to actors. That comes all with experience. I mean, a lot of people get in trouble. A lot of DPs do super inappropriate things. Uh... I mean, as we, Christian Bale, I mean, I've worked, my, my Wally's done six movies with him. I've done a couple. I mean, he's like the greatest, nicest, respectful guy. But, you know, this blow up that everybody knows about, it's like, you know, it's, there's a reason, you know. It's like, you, you, gotta, you gotta know how to do it, you know. And that you learn, I guess that's experience. I mean, experience is really, you're not getting better at what you do, or you're not gonna become more talented and a better, lighter you're gonna you're gonna get faster and you're gonna know how to see problems before they happen so you can predict uh, a situation that that's gonna be a problem before other people do and therefore 
try and fix it earlier and um, yeah that's really the main thing I mean Haskell Wexler when he was uh, directing and he was talking about when he had his cinematographer because I would watch him and I would give him the freedom but and he eventually he got exactly to the point that I would have gotten it just took him like twice as long but you know well, cool. So uh, I think that wraps it up. Um, let's uh, please have a round of applause for Faden uh, Popmarker. And also for Hot Rod Cameras for uh, hosting this event. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Thank you so much. I can't hear you. Oh, yeah. Before we go, uh, where can people find your work online? I know where that is. Online? Yeah, if people wanted to find you... Are you on social media or website that people can see your work? Uh, I'm not a big social media guy. I do have an Instagram account, uh, Papa2, P-A-P-A, the number two. But I post very little. And uh, uh, I mean, I have my commercials on untitled.tv because I'm uh, represented by them as a director. Uh, I have a very old site that I haven't really updated that has some things that fadenpapamichael.com every DP has an out of date website every yeah. single one that we've talked uh, about I haven't touched that in five years and then I have uh, uh, like I mentioned earlier we, we do have uh, which is pretty interesting I think but um, is, is uh, with Janusz Kaminski Wally Pfister and myself we did uh, we shot about you know maybe eight hours worth of just conversation like we just had uh talking about how we started how how we collaborate with directors uh how we pick material uh how we choose to buy equipment or not buy equipment how the industry is changing those kind of things um also lifestyle things how do you manage i always think it's very interesting you know like when i speak at afi or somewhere um that the students actually ask me, how do you m manage, how do you balance work as a cinematographer, traveling, uh, having family, having kids, uh, not getting divorced. Most of my DP friends are divorced. Um, uh, you know, balancing all that. I think that's really important stuff to consider as you're entering, you know, this, this business and especially cinematography. Because we are on the road a lot, and we're gone a long time often. So at advancedfilmmaking.com, we do talk about that. Um, it's pretty interesting because Janusz and Wally have had, although we all started at Roger Corman together, they have very you know, different paths and also very different careers. Uh, Wally stopped shooting, and he's directing, uh, and now he's uh, directing exclusively commercials. You know, so... Uh, all these different lifestyle choices are pretty interesting, I think, for young filmmakers. Um, and um, yeah, so all right, definitely check that out. So thank right. you very much. All right, great. Thanks so much. Thank you.